Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we give you great thanks uh, for your word and uh, for uh, your gift of the church. And we pray this morning that as we talk about what it means to live not only in community, but to live in the world as the church in which we do live, uh, Lord, how that uh, changes things. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, back in 2000, David Brooks wrote a... Um, I'm just smiling because I've already been approached several times by tell someone telling me there's a Cadillac parked in your parking spot. Everyone knows how sensitive I am about my parking spot, but I actually drove it. Um, <laughs> and so everyone's like, you always, you kind of were born old, uh, but it's, um, the rest of the family's out at the lake and they didn't want a car without car seats, so I drove my mother-in-law's Mary Kay Cadillac. I'm kidding, it's not a Mary Okay. There is one at the Advent, though. They're 11 o'clockers. You'll see them. Okay. okay. Um, in 2000, uh, David Brooks wrote a book called Bobos in Paradise. Have you all read that one? Yeah, it's good. Uh, and what David Brooks wanted to talk about is he wanted to get his finger on the pulse of what's going on. Uh, there's a rocking chair there, and it's carpeted in steps here, if if you'd like. Um, um and David Brooks wanted to get his uh, handle on what was going on in the society because a clear change had uh, taken place. And, <clears throat> and we're going to talk about that change. But where the, word, the term Bobo comes from is what he realizes that the new elite class, the ruling class in America, are Bobos. That is uh, Bohemian bourgeoisie. So no longer is it sort of like Greenwich Village versus the Upper East Side, they've actually merged. They've they've merged together, and so that's why um, if you were to read the New York Times uh, wedding announcements, and up until really the 1990s, uh, you would read um, Anne Smith, the daughter of so and so, who's related to somebody who came over in the Mayflower, a graduate. <laughs> of Smith College uh, is uh, pursuing graduate studies at Penn in Near Eastern Anthropology <laughs> and, uh, and is marrying James McKay, who is a graduate of Penn and also Yale Law School and is practicing law at thus and such law firm and whose parents came over uh, on the Nina. Um, and uh, so it was it was about pedigree it was about you know merging together but something interesting happened in the 1990s all of a sudden the new, the wedding announcements in the New York Times changed and they're still the most fun to read instead of ra sounding like two dynasties coming together it sounded more like mergers and acquisitions <laughs> it would say uh, Ann Smith uh, a graduate of Smith and Near Eastern Anthropology has just received her MBA from Penn and plans on restoring antique furniture in Thailand and ensuring that people have a living wage there in order to sell you overpriced furniture here in the United States <laughs> for charity. And then, uh, and, you know, the same thing sort of about James McKay. All of a sudden, it became, uh, it was like a topsy-turvy thing where you still have these people who would fit the mold of... Mayflower relatives or whatever, um, but they had taken on the lifestyle and the views of the Bohemians, who the bourgeoisie were over and against. I'm going to try to say that word as few times as possible because it just makes me want to get ill when I say it, bourgeoisie. Anyway, so um, 
And so we really do live in a, a world of bobos. And, um, and I want to talk this morning about uh, who they are, where they are spiritually, and where the church fits in. I hit on it a little bit last week, um, but I didn't get as specific. And um, one of the ways that we see this working itself out is in the marketplace. And so now you have all of these amazing stores like Restoration Hardware. Right? And Restoration Hardware, their job is to take something new and make it look old and charge you antique prices for it. Right? That's, that's what it is. Instead, no one goes say, I want an antique pine bench. They just go to Restoration Hardware or Crate and Barrel or someplace like that, and they buy a new bench that simply looks old. And, uh, and we even have new phrases for it, distressed, right? A little distress work here and this to make it look old. And um, when uh, Restoration Hardware launched uh, their initial public offering in 1998, uh, the voiceover accompanying the video that they showed is the release. Here was the voiceover. Lurking in our collective unconsciousness among images of Ike, Donna Reed, and George Bailey is the very clear sense that things were better made, that they mattered a little more. And images of the 40s and 50s are filling the video screen. Well, what happened? Slowly but surely, we became a nation obsessed with production and, of course, consumption. Now, there's a huge irony in all this, of course. Uh, and at this point, we see images. They're, they're actually, you, I have the video. You can see these images of big box stores and huge suburban developments and outlet malls. And then the, the reader continues, this was pretty heady and pretty good. We got so proficient at making things. We had unlimited choices and an endless array of goods. The retail environment came to reflect this mentality. More square footage, more, more, more. Then one day the generation used to having everything recoiled and became the generation searching for something. Well, there you have it. You have a generation with unlimited choices. Of course, now Restoration Hardware has totally bucked that trend, and they're in all the outlet malls. Um, you, in a generation, it gave itself unlimited choices, and yet still finds that it's searching for something. And one of the amazing things is that our society is not is although we're willing to go back to that time and find nostalgia and sentimentality in in those sorts of retro things we're not willing to actually go back to the age of limits from where that stuff came from uh, which would mean cutting off options All right so options are a really uh, big thing and uh, Bobos, of course, uh, and I mean, it's really us, our culture, um, are really into achievement. That's what we do. Uh, and so, so achievement driven are we, and I fall in this category. I'm going to wrap myself out. My daughter is three years old and takes Mandarin lessons on Monday, because if she doesn't, she will be a huge failure in the business world. <laughs> She'll never make it. She'll never make it. And I can use all the excuses of, well, if she doesn't learn when she's young, she won't be able to perfect the accent. You know, she doesn't, she doesn't know anything about it. I mean, she's been taking it for a year. She doesn't, word one. I take her to Chen Express, and I say, what's that say? And she says, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, but it's all about achievement. Um, one of the, the big industries that is really worried about all of this is um, 
uh, and also safe proofing our children, which of course in this day and age we want to do. Uh, but one of the things that they're finding is the bicycle industry has really gone down the tubes uh, because no longer are kids getting on their bikes and riding around. They're, they're off doing Mandarin lessons. They're off doing other things. And so uh, no one is buying uh, a bicycle anymore. And in spite of the fact that we say, because here's the thing about our society, is that most people, especially in Birmingham, are more than willing, and even David Brooks says this about Bobos, uh, are willing to be active in church, but really are not interested in having an external authority to tell them how to lead their lives. Totally willing to be active in church, synagogue, whatever, uh, but not interested in having an external authority tell them how to lead their lives. Now, I relate to that because I don't like anybody telling me what to do. And yet, we live in a highly moralistic culture. Just look at Facebook. Right? I'm not sure where the idea came from that we think that if we post an argument on Facebook, it will tilt the argument in the, in the right direction. Right? Uh, the Onion had a headline that was making fun of that, and it says, uh, person in fit of conscience, conscience uh, decides not to post Facebook anti-gun argument because it would have tipped the argument in the other direction. Right? Right? Because, uh, I mean, one of the things that, that I'm seeing on Facebook these days is uh, just uh, the ability to say, this is what I think and feel, uh, and uh, I don't want to hear what you have to say about it, and so don't put your angry comments under mine. Uh, but it's pretty amazing how moralistic people have become regardless of their, of their ideological or theological stripe. And you have these friends. You might be these friends. Uh, but uh, you have these friends where you're just like, you get to the point if you're on Facebook and you think, I don't want this showing up on, on my Facebook page. I, I just, I don't want to see it. Uh, it makes me sick. And it now even makes me uncomfortable to go uh, and be around somebody who will, who will post these sort of, I know what I'm talking about, you don't, um, at like dinner or someplace like that because it's the elephant in the room. Now, it used to be that you just had friends when you said, okay, we're going to invite them over for a dinner party and, and they're that person who's always going to bring up that issue and you just sort of like, you know, hopefully it'll come later in the night or, or, or whatever and, you, and you, you manage it, right? You manage it. But now... It's unpredictable. You have all these people who, uh, who will do it on social media or tweet things. Uh, Lauren and I have a friend who is our age who on her Facebook for relationship status, she put, uh, I just don't know if it's worth it anymore. And I said, Lauren, no matter how bad things get with us, <laughs> let me know first. <laughs> right? Just clue me in. Um, um, that, and you know, I... Lauren and I had a, a, you know, I thought that I had a lot of Facebook friends. I've got 900, almost 1,000. Uh, and then I asked, I, I was looking at somebody else's the other day. They had 2,700 friends, friends, right, friends? 2,700 people. And I thought, you know, if I posted, I just don't know if it's worth it anymore. Like, some of those people on my friends list, like, you know, my, my third cousin's mother-in-law's Sunday school teacher's son, you know, would be on that list if you get to 2,700. And, like, why do they need to know that? You know, but uh, all that to say is that we live in a highly moralistic world in spite of the fact that um, people don't like to be told uh, what to do. And when the world looks at the church, they see it as somebody trying to tell them what to do. 
right? They're the mean dean. Uh, they often look at God that way. And I used to think that people don't think that. People don't think that at all. Well, I should probably turn off the mic at this point because I went to a clergy day for the diocese last week, and the topic was the atonement. Right? I'm glad they're asking the question. And yet some of the stuff I heard, I just thought, good grief. You know, I, I'm going to have to be really, if, if this is what some of the clergy think, uh, what does the average person in the street think? And um, so I started asking around since that day, uh, what are your thoughts on the church? And what kind of answers do you think that I, that I got? Tepid. Tepid, yeah. Ish. Number one answer, you're going to know it as soon as I say it. I'm okay with Jesus, but I got issues with the church. I'm okay with Jesus, but I have issues on the church. But then I asked them, well, tell me about Jesus. Tell me about who Jesus is. And what I heard a lot of is this sort of Jesus is um, a really nice guy. He, uh, he has a degree in counseling. He's a therapist. And um, he is, is there for you when you get into trouble. And... Um, and, and it just kind of, it, it went from there, you know what they're saying. And so what I realized is that most people, their concept of Christianity is behavior, right? If you're, it, what it means to be a Christian is that you behave yourself. And Jesus is somebody that you sort of shout out for when you get in trouble. And therefore the church is basically about helping people, even in a positive sense, the church is about helping people live better lives. What I found was that most people that I run around with think that the church's responsibility or role is helping people live better lives to helping you be more moral and that's not what the church is about because that's not what Jesus is about right Jesus is primarily about rescue I have a little mug at home from the Beaufort County uh, Department of Social Services and has this man in the ocean and reaching for uh, a little life ring that has been thrown to him and it says uh, Beaufort County Social Services answers for a world lost in a sea of madness I thought gosh the mug gets it a little bit better than than some of the people I'm talking to uh, now I don't think that the Beaufort County Social Service System <coughs> is is the lifeline that you want to hold on to um, <laughs> speaking from experience uh, but um, but they do get it that the church being an ark of refuge and indeed as someone once said uh, a hospital for sinners and so these people tend to get turned off turned off by the church if they think that it's a place to help you live better and to be more moral they don't like it because they think that the church is full of hypocrites and therefore the church isn't working it doesn't work now the fact of the matter is is the church is full of hypocrites Right, I'll be the first to say that. Right, I, you know, I drove in from uh, Jasper this morning, and uh, it was very foggy. Uh, but I don't think that that's a reason to drive 35 and a 55. And so um, I wasn't very Christian to the person that was in front of me, who happened to be a nun. I'm just kidding. Uh, and so, uh, and so I passed them, and I, I kind of, you know, had my hands white knuckled, and well, that wasn't uh, a very Christian thing, and if you were to follow me around, and I mean, heaven forbid, if you were actually able to get into my mind and know what I think uh, all day long, uh, you would think, 
my man's got some issues, <laughs> right? Uh, some real, real issues. What's Beaufort County Social Service number again? Uh, you would, you would think that, and so that's why I'm a Christian because I came to the point in my life where I said, you know, uh, I can't pull it together. Uh, I, I can't rescue myself uh, from the sea of madness. And more often than not, it's not just external factors that do this to me. I find that I got into the mess I'm in because of who I am uh, and what's in my own DNA and what is in my own nature. And I used to think the same thing, that you know, uh, a lot of people, this happens a lot, uh, will be going along fine and well and good in the church, and then all of a sudden they get involved in the church, right? They get elected to vestry or something like that, and they think, I'm out of here. I'm out of here because the church is just as political and is just as uh, torn and is just as broken as all of the other organizations that I find myself a part of in the world. My answer to that is, yeah. But the difference, but the difference is, is that what the church invites us to do is to give up and to be self-aware and honest with ourselves. And to say, I'm here because I'm broken and I'm, needed, and I'm in need of healing. And I know that I can't heal myself. I'm driving down the road. I act like a maniac. I'm honking at Jim Smith on the on-ramp because he's trying to be nice and wave. And I want him to get out of the way so I can go get my lunch. Uh, whatever. That actually did happen. Um, uh, but uh, just because Jim's standing, I can see him. But, and I'm sure I've done it to all of you as well. Uh, and, um, and, I'm, and I know what I'm like. And so I need to go to some place where something or someone is offered and said, uh, you're right, uh, welcome. Uh, welcome to the land of hypocrisy. And yet, that is scary for some people, even though they know that's what they need deep down inside is for rescue. Uh, the moment you say, here's a place where you can be self-aware and honest about who you are and the way things are in the world, right? Christianity doesn't sugarcoat it. Christianity is not about sunshine and lollipops. Christianity is not about, oh, it'll get better, or, um, you know, when life gives you lemon, make lemonade. Um, you know, in our family, we had all these very cheerful, helpful sayings. Like my grandfather used to say, when things were really bad, he would say, well, Andrew, uh, know uh, that it's only darkest right before it goes completely pitch black. <laughs> Um, um, or the Lord will provide, or not. <laughs> right. So um, that's not what the church is about. The church is not about putting themselves forward or, oh, here are these programs that we can, we can uh, offer you to, to help you get from point A uh, to point B. Uh, but in fact, what we do is we offer a person and a message, which is Jesus Christ. And that message becomes very personal uh, for you uh, and uh, for me. And for some people, that's frightening because they don't want to be self-aware. They don't want to be honest. Uh, they don't want to think that the problem actually may begin with themselves and lie within them, and that is the first step. Uh, being able to say, I'm a wreck and I need rescue. And uh, sometimes churches buy into the fact that, or buy into what our culture says, and so what we do is we offer a plethora of things, and sometimes those are all well and good. Like, I would love uh, a class on Christian parenting, uh, but as I go through that class, it makes me realize how much of an unchristian parent I am, right? Uh, so, uh, 
Or, you know, um, you know I, I took a Crown financial class, and that was really great and, and very helpful for me. Uh, but that, uh, those classes don't have the power and are not the means by which we can see our lives changed and transformed. Because what will happen is if people go to church thinking that that's it, they'll go to those classes, they'll do those things, and they'll find what? Things haven't changed that much. They're still kind of the same. And so this church doesn't have the programs and, and ministries that I need, so I'm going to go uh, someplace else uh, that is going to fit and meet my needs. Right? I don't know if you ever heard that. This church isn't meeting my needs. Right? Now, I do think that there's a sense, like I've been to churches and visited churches where I thought, I will never, ever go here. Uh, and not necessarily because of good or bad things, but just like... I, I just don't think that this is uh, a good fit for us. And then there will be other places where people will say uh, that I really like, and they'll say, this is the worst church I've ever been to. I'll say, well, I'm glad you think that, because I don't want you here, and I want to stay. Uh, so <laughs> whatever the case may be. Uh, so there are, I mean, I'm not saying discounting those completely and totally, um, but uh, what I am saying, though, is that they're very basic uh, root uh, churches ought to be primarily about preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's it. Because if we don't do that, let's all go play golf right now. Right? It, it's just not worth it. Some uh, of my friends who are in ministry found themselves burnt out very early on. And, uh, and we would all get together and we'd talk about this. And, and I would say, well, tell me about, you know, why, why, are you, why are you burnt out? What's going on? And they would say, well, you know, I, I get up and, and I preach these messages. And, uh, and I don't find that the congregation is changing. Right? I, I've challenged them, uh, everyone, to sign up and to do some sort of mission this year, whether it's local or foreign or whatever. And, uh, and the sign-ups aren't going that well, and I just don't feel like I'm being effective, and they don't respect me, and, and the message isn't getting through, and, uh, and I'm thinking, well, I can see why you're burnt out, because my friend thinks that it's dependent upon him, right? Him convincing people to do uh, thus and such, and, um, and I gave him a little quote uh, by Spurgeon, and what it basically did was in the context of me challenging him, and I said, I'll tell you what, just preach the gospel, like, you know what the gospel is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You've heard that before. Uh, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Preach that. Just preach that and see what happens. Do you know what happened? People signed up for mission trips. People signed up to do local missions. Why? Because there was a heart change that happened. Jesus called them to the mission field. And it wasn't about his sermons or, or however it was that, that he was um, preaching or, or him cajoling them, but in fact, um, the message of the cross. Uh, a couple years ago, there was a guy uh, named, uh, well, there is a guy named Francis Fukuyama who wrote a book called The Great Disruption, which is a good book, and he talks about people in our society and religion. Instead of community arising as a byproduct of rigid belief, now he doesn't mean that in a negative sense, but just sort of common held beliefs, people will return to religious belief because of their desire for community. In other words, people will return to religious tradition not necessarily because they accept the truth of revelation, 
but precisely because the absence of community and the transience of social ties in the secular world makes them hungry for ritual and cultural tradition. They will help the poor or their neighbors they will help the poor or their neighbors, not because doctrine, doctrine tells them they must, but rather because they want to serve their communities and find that faith-based organizations are the most effective ways of doing so. They will repeat ancient prayers and reenact age-old rituals, not because they believe they were handed down by God, but rather because they want their children to have proper values and because they want to enjoy the comfort of ritual and the sense of shared experience it brings. In a sense, they will not be taking religion seriously on its own terms. Religion becomes a source of ritual in a society that has been stripped bare of ceremony and thus a reasonable extension of the natural desire for social relatedness with which all human beings are born. Okay, what is Fukuyama saying? Well, what he's saying is that people are coming to church, sometimes not through some existential angst, um, but people are also coming to church uh, because they're looking for a way to tie in and being part of a community. Now, whether they are able to articulate it or not, I think that Fukuyama's not saying something. I think that they're also looking for a community that will love them where they are. Now, if you're able to get past the self-aware and honest with yourself issue, then you can get to a place where hopefully the community in which you're a part of will love you as you are for who you are. Right? If the church isn't willing to do that, you won't have self-aware and honest people. Because we've all been there, small group, Bible study, prayer group, coffee pot here, wherever, not just here, but any in your Christian experience, um, where uh, someone's asked maybe if they can pray for you about something or whatever it might be. And what's really on your heart is not what you're expressing because you're afraid of what they might say. You're afraid of, because what your prayer is is something that might be perceived as unchristian. Uh, not just that, but also um, what will they think of you? Like a struggle with an addiction. Um, you know, there's an idea in the church that if, if uh, and I'm not saying, you, when I say church, you understand what I'm saying, sort of the cultural church at large, that if you're a Christian, you don't, you don't struggle with addiction. And you would be shocked uh, to find out uh, that, that your best friend struggles with, with something. Um, and if that's the idea that we have, then, then there's not really any hope for that person to come out and actually be honest and say, um, this is what I'm struggling with. Uh, will you pray for me? But the thing about it is, if we're all self-aware and we're all honest with ourselves, uh, we all have those areas of our lives where we would absolutely die if somebody found out about it. Right? Whether it's a moment from our past uh, or something that we're struggling with uh, in the present. Um, you know, one of the things that I find time and time again uh, when uh, a couple will, will come in uh, uh, for marriage counseling, and I've given up on trying to get, you know, when people say, we'd like to meet with you. You know, I used to think, I wonder what it's about. Uh, and I've totally given up on that because it's always something different. It's always something different. And just when somebody thinks, this is the craziest thing you've ever heard, I can top it. I've heard some crazy stuff. And, um, but 9.9 .9 times out of 10, the couple sitting on the couch will say, this is our struggle, and we think that our relationship is coming to an end, and it's all I can do to help to keep from smiling. Because the last nine couples that were on the couch came in and said, we know that we're the only couple that struggle with this. 
No other couple in the world struggles with this, and so we're really at a loss. And I can say to them, welcome to marriage. <laughs> right? What you struggle with is what 9.9 .9 other couples out of 10 uh, struggle with as well. And just to know... I mean, when I tell them that, that this is completely normal uh, for y'all to have to deal with this, just the look of relief on their face, faces just to hear that. Not even, okay, here's a way forward, but just you're a statistic. <laughs> you're normal, right? It's, it's okay. Uh, and just the relief that that brings in their lives uh, where all of a sudden then they know we can be honest uh, and we can actually uh, see a way forward knowing uh, that we're not the only individuals, the only couple uh, struggling uh, with uh, these issues. And so, well, what do I say to those couples? What do we as Christians uh, say to our friends who are struggling and are at a place where they want to be self-aware, they want to be honest. Uh, they've come to church because I've seen it on Sundays, and maybe you have too, where people have shown up in the church and you've never seen them before, and they're in the pew and they're visibly distressed. Uh, they're crying. Um, they just look shaken. Uh, uh, and in fact, it may be people who have come Sunday in and Sunday out. And there are times when I come to church where I've got something really weighing on me, and I say, God, I, I'd like to hear from you this morning. Um, I really need a word. And um, I feel like uh, things are, are kind of sand in my hand right now. And uh, I, don't, I don't have a, a plan forward, and so I need you. And we've all been there at that point in time. Uh, and what is the church's response uh, for those people? Now, there are times when I do, uh, more often than not, I would love a 10-step plan. I really love it. That would be great. Just give me sort of the list, and I'll go out uh, and do it. Uh, but um, it, it, it doesn't work. It, it doesn't work in the sense that if it's rooted in your own strength, um, it's not going to work. It has to be rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so what we have to offer is that one thing. The Articles of Religion in the back of the prayer book, which are the doctrinal formulation for the Anglican Church, um, says this, this is what the church is about. The visible church of Christ is a congregation of faithful people in which the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments be duly administered according to Christ's ordinance. So that means that this is what the church does. We preach Jesus Christ and we administer the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism. That's what we do. And the moment the church starts to get into other areas, that's where we get burned and where we get into big, big trouble. Just ask the Methodist and the Baptist back during the days of Prohibition. Right? One of the sociological phenomenons that, I know, that, um, that I've been reading a little bit about in the past couple of years is how the churches that were really big into Prohibition, when it came to civil rights, were almost totally off the radar screen. And that's not simply because those churches were racist or bigoted, uh, but it's clear what happened is that they got real burned during Prohibition, and so there was this real reticence to step back in uh, where a prophetic voice was needed. Um, and in that case, it was. Um, just listen to Deborah's sermon this morning. Jesus is pro-wine. So um, uh, I wish she'd hammered a little bit more on that one. But, uh, but she is from New England. There you go. But that's, uh, that's the role of the church, and that even to some level is the role of us as Christians to one another, that um, 
when there is uh, that brokenness in the life of the individual or the life of the family or, or whatever it happens to be, that what we do is we offer them the word of God. We offer them Jesus Christ and say, uh, here's the lifeline. Here's what's going to pull you out of the water. Here's what's going to save you uh, from your distress. And uh, one of the things that Jesus does for us is... Um, he uh, gives us these pledges, these tokens, uh, that give us a visual image of what he's done for us in baptism and in communion. Uh, and they're not actually just uh, reminders, uh, they're actually seals. Uh, you know, if um, uh, the promises are already sure, but if you were to get a document uh, that said, um, I don't know, uh, Dear so-and-so, uh, you have uh, just inherited uh, more money than you will ever know what to do with. Uh, and um, uh, just call me at my office, uh, and here's the name of the, of the person writing you. Uh, you would look at that letter with a great deal of skepticism. right? There's a promise in there that you're about to be a, an inheritor of a great sum. Um, but, um, but there are things that we even do in our society um, to sort of make it uh, a little more valid. Uh, we've got like notaries, right, who put their, their seal on something to attest to what is being said. Um, certain offices in government have a seal which they put on it so you know who it's from. Now that doesn't make what the letter says any more true, because it is true, uh, but it's simply there's a seal on it, uh, and that's what communion and the Lord's, uh, the Lord's Supper and baptism is for us. It's a seal uh, that shows us how much more uh, those promises of God's great love for us are. And so I, I feel like when it comes to community and what people are crying out for, what, what we've read today uh, from Fukuyama uh, and David Brooks, is that it's clear that the world that we live in wants community because the old things that used to have community or provide community for them uh, really aren't, don't do that anymore. They don't do that anymore. And, um, and even at some level, the church isn't the community uh, that it once was. Uh, but what unites us as a church uh, is much greater than anything that would unite us in a community outside of the church. Because the church ought to be and is uh, the only place where you can be yourself, or at least be self-aware and honest about who you are. Now there is, now let me put a disclaimer. I'm not telling you that I want you to come up to me and share with me your deepest, darkest sin. Um, I heard a really great analogy uh, a couple weeks ago where um, uh, that which we share uh, ought to be, and the honesty that we have with one another ought to be like strands of twinkle lights. Right, you know when you drive through uh, uh, English Village and that uh, Vino on the right, you know the little twinkle lights they have in the trees and you think even out of Christmas season that's so nice and it's so lovely. Uh, that's what the community ought to look like in its honesty, everybody being honest, connected, uh, seeing one another's light and being okay with it. Uh, when you overshare it's like me walking up with a uh, like a spotlight in your face and you're like whoa, right, whoa. Um, so I'm not saying that, uh, I'm not saying that we need to overshare, uh, but I, I do think that there's um, there needs to be a level of transparency and ability to be yourself, and um, that connects people to say that person knows me as I am and for who I am, and they love me, and they love me. And not just that, but what ultimately binds us together is that uh, is Jesus Christ. 
being in communion with him and being covered by his blood uh, and knowing uh, that we are reconciled. Because the bottom line is that we're all in the same boat. Just when you think that the sin you struggle with is the worst thing that, you could, that anyone on the face of the earth could possibly struggle with, uh, know that that's not true. No one is more sinful uh, than anybody else in the world. And God's love and God's grace for you uh, is just as deep and as abiding uh, as it is for the person you think has their act totally, totally together. And so in the world that we live in where there's so much competition over whether your child speaks Mandarin by the time that they're five uh, or, um, or what preschool they get into, uh, or whatever uh, it might be, uh, and a longing for community that is defined uh, not by who you are or what you have or where you've been or where you're going, uh, but whose you are, and allowing uh, God allowing you to be yourself and to be loved uh, for who you are and to be able to be honest with one another and, um, and to uh, know uh, God's great love for you. And... Um, in the moment that we get away from that, we might as well take down the shingle. Um, uh, and that being said, I've got nothing else to say. Um, uh, that's it. Questions, comments, concerns? Come on. Is it okay to say amen after some of the comments? You're, you, you, are, you are. We had. Where's my friend from last week? She was saying amen. She was saying amen a lot. And so... I said amen once this morning during Deborah's sermon. Um, it was. It, it threw Frank off, though. Um, sure. Yeah, not, not, not like that's hard to do. But okay. All right. Um, um, okay. Well, um, let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, for your church and for the communities in which we live. And, Lord, um, that being a part of this community is not about our virtues or even our vices, uh, but about your great love for us. And so, Lord, that our love for one another would be rooted in you, uh, that we might be um, at a place where we can be honest and self-aware and show compassion and love uh, for fellow pilgrims on this journey, which is so often uh, a struggle and so often marked uh, by defeat. But, Lord Jesus, we thank you that in you there is victory and uh, you are stronger than he who is in the world. And so that we would rest in your work and person and that you would bless us. And as we go into our communities, that we would be little gospel outposts in the places that we live, uh, loving that which is unlovely. And as you reconcile the world to yourself, in Jesus' name, amen.